Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gamison and it is my privilege to be your host. I hope that you will find something encouraging and challenging that will help you as you traverse this journey that we call the Christian life. Last week, if you'll recall, we shared the first six of 12 unique attributes of Christianity as outlined in a Tim Keller Facebook post. And we are following that up this week with part two of that discussion with the final six attributes that he lists. Now, it is my hope that each of these attributes will become an individual episode as we dig deeper on these issues. But we're introing them over these last two weeks, and I'm excited to jump into part two with you. But before we do that, let's talk about what is going on. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the sudden demise of the disinformation board of the Biden administration. Meanwhile, I want to bring you some extremely sad news. The Ministry of Truth is no more. That's right. The Biden administration's disinformation board or whatever they're calling it has been paused indefinitely. And it seems as though sweet, sweet Nina Jankowitz, woke Mary Poppins, is resigning. This scoop coming from the Washington Post. Listen to this headline. How the Biden administration let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. The quote-unquote pause of the Department of Homeland Security's newly created board comes after its head, Nina Jankowitz, was the victim of coordinated online attacks as the administration struggled to respond. The byline, Taylor Lorenz, who is an expert on coordinating online attacks. It's her whole job. So apparently the Biden administration is just knuckled under to right wing attacks. And in the story, it's like this was mentioned on Fox News a lot. Oh, no. How dare we? How dare we? It's just a powerful government entity. Supposedly and ostensibly designed to root out misinformation and disinformation. Led by an apparently unvetted woman who has been a promiscuous spreader of mis and disinformation herself. And strangely, our news organization thought that was newsworthy. I have a question for you. First and foremost, on the surface, as with so many things, this seems like an innocuous thing. A disinformation board seems like a good way to go. We want to get the best information out there. However, how can we trust a disinformation board for a presidential administration that did not allow people to share their honest thoughts and experiences about COVID? Whenever people shared their honest thoughts and experiences about COVID, they were always poo-pooed. When the COVID vaccines came out, people were encouraged wholesale to take the vaccine and any risks from the vaccine were downplayed. I talked about this several months ago when I played a, I think probably three or four minute clip of an even longer seven or eight minute video 
that was just the side effects of medicines. And I said at that time that I've never been fully against the vaccine or other treatments for COVID. My biggest thing is be honest about those treatments. If you want me to take your vaccine, be honest about the ramifications of doing so. And don't just blindly say that everyone should take them. Because even the most seasoned medicines, the medicines that have been around for years and that drug companies want you to take, still have long lists of side effects and long lists of people that shouldn't take them. Not to mention the fact that Facebook has often taken the tact that many liberals have, and that is, if something disagrees with them, it is fact-checked as false. What do I mean by this? Anytime someone mentioned a concern about the COVID vaccine, even when they were talking about their own bodily response to it, these posts were fact-checked as false, often. Facebook as an entity has gone full tilt into supporting the liberal agenda and the Biden administration. So why would we, for one minute, think that the disinformation board would be something that would be beneficial to the American people? The reality is they did not come up with this disinformation board until Elon Musk finalized purchasing Twitter. And he pledged to bring back free speech to the platform. Now, I'm not all in on Elon Musk, nor do I automatically think that he's the savior of the world or that he's going to be the next great Republican to save our party. I don't know enough about him to say any of that. The one thing I do know is that the statements that I have heard from him recently are statements that say that freedom of speech is important. Discussion is important. We've talked about on this podcast so many times how discussion is the foundation of America. America's Constitution and Declaration of Independence, their founding documents, were hammered out through discussion in the Continental Congress. If we get to a place in our country where discussion is no longer acceptable, we are in trouble. I fully support those with opposing views from mine in their right to say the things that they believe. But you see, free speech works this way. My opponent says something that I vehemently disagree with, and then I have the opportunity because of free speech to refute that person. If we don't believe that things should be discussed and refuted when necessary, we will lose our liberty. This is so important to understand. And I think there's so many issues where we can look down the scope of discussion and the formation of these thoughts and these ideologies and realize that the very thing that they are claiming, meaning the left, the very thing that they are accusing us of 
is often what they are guilty of. They accuse us of racism. And so what happens? The answer to that is for the administration of our current president to make every major appointment a black woman. Think about this. He chose a black woman for vice president. He chose a black woman for the Supreme Court, and now a black woman is the press secretary. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for a black woman to have any of these roles. I'm simply saying that if the only reason I was getting chosen for a job was because I was in a wheelchair, I would actually be offended by that. So the only thing I am saying to you right now is that the litmus test for being a success in any administration should be more than your gender and your the color of your skin. Martin Luther King Jr. said the thing that we should think about, the thing that we should be focused on is the content of our character. But as Michael Knowles said a few months ago, we can't even focus on the content of our character because we don't even know what character means anymore. And as I was delineating about COVID, it made me think of also these doctors. These doctors that came on and they put out a website and they said, these are treatments for COVID that we have found that have been successful with our patients. And their website and their very social media presence was stripped from the internet. Basically overnight. How is that free speech? I would really like to know the answer to that question. And so I, for one, am glad that this disinformation board is on hold. I don't think that it has gone the way of the dinosaur. I do think it will, will be back. But we need to keep speaking truth and to not be afraid to share it. The next story I want to talk about is this new trend where employers are jumping on the bandwagon to tell their employees, we will pay for you to go across state lines to get abortions if Roe versus Wade falls. Because as we've talked about in the past, the Supreme Court has had a memo leaked, which seems to indicate that Roe versus Wade will fall in a matter of weeks by 5-4 at least opinion. We don't know the final number. We don't know if that's actually what will happen. But that seems to be where things are leaning. And the left has gone bananas over this. Now, American companies are increasingly taking public stances on social and political issues. The latest such example is abortion. A recently leaked Supreme Court draft decision would overturn the Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized that procedure throughout the U.S. half a century ago. Some big companies have responded to the looming abortion crackdown by pledging support for employees, while others remain quiet. 
Microsoft joins a growing number of companies who are offering reimbursement for abortion-related travel expenses. The list includes Apple and Amazon. Apple first proposed such a benefit for employees after Texas passed sweeping anti-abortion legislation in 2021. It's a position that many will applaud, but one which has vocal opponents on the political right wing. A backlash has already started brewing, with one U.S. senator introducing legislation that would prevent companies from receiving tax breaks on expenses tied to covering abortion-related travel. The fight over abortion protections mirrors other thorny social justice battles from recent years, with companies taking clear public stances on activist movements such as Black Lives Matter. Disney's opposition to the so-called Don't Say Gay bill in Florida led to the governor there removing its special tax status. You're a corporation based in Burbank, California, and you're going to marshal your economic might to attack the parents of my state, uh, we view that as a provocation, and we're going to fight back against that. Taking stances on hot-button issues used to be relegated to the political arena. For corporations, there's no winning move here. Whether they take a stand or stay silent, many will see any move as political. Okay, the reason that I brought this up is because I recently saw something in the comments of one of the many posts I've read on this topic about, hey, more people would have their babies if there was longer paternity leave or if there was more money for child care shelled out by employers. And on the surface, I would say that for the most part, your employer isn't responsible for your choices. But here's what I have to say on this particular issue. If, in fact, it is true that if more resources were offered by employers or even by the government, people would have less abortions, why are we not? As companies, especially multi-million dollar corporations, as were mentioned in this story that we just heard, like Microsoft and Amazon, saying we will give you money for child care. We will give you money for extended paternity leave. Instead, they are saying we will give you money to kill your child. And I really really, really have an issue with that. The reality is, folks, that there may have been a time in the past when we could rationalize abortion because we didn't know as much as we know medically now and because babies' survival outside the womb was not very highly likely if they were way too young. But the... America of the 1960s or 70s is not the America of the 2020s. The America of the 2020s shows us that we can detect a fetal heartbeat after six weeks. The America of the 2020s shows us that babies as young as 22 weeks old are now viable outside the womb. So this whole viability argument for allowing abortions to continue is in large part up in smoke. That's why so many pro-abortion people have lately been saying, I don't care if it is a baby, I can do what I want. 
And I actually watched a video earlier this evening that talked about how abortions were legal in the Americas as early as 1600. But I would push back on that and say that just because they were practiced and just because there were no laws outlawing them does, is not the same thing as being legal. I would also push back and say legal doesn't mean moral. Another thing I want to mention here, I know I've mentioned it in the past, but I think it's worth mentioning here as well, is people who say, I don't want the courts to have anything to do with my body. But do you realize when what you're saying when you say that? Because Roe versus Wade in itself was a court decision. Roe versus Wade was justices, nine justices being able to make a decision about the health and wellness of unborn human life. And the only difference is that now that the government might be doing something that you don't want them to do, now you don't want them involved in the process. Because the very fact that Roe versus Wade was handed down was the government being involved in the process. Let's get that straight. Second of all, I continuously see in comments on the pro-abortion side that if I am a man... I don't get a say on this issue because it's a woman's choice. But by that logic, if a woman makes a choice to have a baby, then I, as the man that fathered that baby, don't have to do anything as far as child support. And I can say for the betterment of my life, I'm not going to support this child. And I should be lauded as a hero because that's the way so many liberals act when it comes to a woman making the choice to end the life of her baby. You can't have it both ways. Either the man should take responsibility for his actions and care for his fathered child, and the woman should bring the child into the world because the child exists as a separate entity. As the saying goes, the body inside your body is not your body unless you can somehow magically grow two heartbeats, four extra limbs, and a whole new DNA structure and still call it your body. But we can't play both sides. I do understand that men sometimes fall down on the job. A lot of times they do, and that's a grief to my heart. As a man who has this instinctual urge to care for and protect, that irks me to no end. But it cannot be an excuse to end the life of a child. And maybe what these multi-million dollar corporations need to do, instead of saying we will kill your children is say we will help you care for your children. I mean, that makes more economic sense anyway, doesn't it? Because those babies that you're killing right now, they are future Microsoft customers. 
They are future Amazon customers. They are future Apple customers. Why would you want to get rid of them? And I say the same thing to the Democratic Party. Why would you want to get rid of hundreds of thousands of voters every few months? We're aborting a million babies a year here in the U.S. And so I just think we need to have an awakening. And the awakening starts with the church of God. The awakening starts with those in the church saying, first of all, I'm going to be pro-life. I'm going to encourage people to keep their babies, to give them up for adoption. I'm going to consider doing foster care or helping unwed mothers in some other way. And then I am going to contribute to their livelihood, their well-being. You know, it used to be that the church's main function was to care for orphans and widows. And I, I'm sure there are many churches that are doing that, that are caring for orphans and widows. But I feel like a lot of times there is more money and effort put into building funds than there is into caring for others. And the problem is, as the church has dropped the ball when it comes to caring for others and being socially aware of the needs of those around us, the government has come in and said, we will pick up your dropped ball, but we have this caveat, you must do it our way. That is a very scary thing to consider. And anyone who thinks killing their young is a good way to prepare for the future of this country is dead wrong. Human life is life made in the image of God. And we as Christians need to do everything we can to defend that image. As I said, today we are delving into part two of our unique characteristics of Christianity. I mentioned last week that I think it's important for us to know why Christianity is the way to go and why we believe so strongly in, in the Bible and the God of the Bible. In this era of moral relativism, we tend to say, well, whatever way that you find to get to God is enough. But the very foundation of Christianity, as we saw last week, is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So he didn't leave wiggle room for us to say, well, maybe your way will get you there. No, he said, this is the way that you need to get there, and I have provided the means for you to do so. And so it is incumbent upon us as believers in the Lord Jesus to be able to 
articulate our beliefs in a clear and concise and understanding way. And so that is why I am beginning this series with this two-week introduction on the unique attributes of Christianity. And now I'd like to share with you our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 56 to 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And I think this is a good verse for us to kick off our discussion with because Jesus is claiming absolute deity in this statement. He is saying that even though he is a man who has stepped down into time and as the religious leaders point out, is below 50 years old, he also transcends time and is in fact the eternal I am that spoke to Moses in Exodus. And as we talk about these issues related to the consistency and the truth of our faith, the most important is the deity of Christ, because only Christ had the credentials with which to deal with our sin in a definite and final way. He died on the cross, was buried, spent three days in the grave, and rose again triumphantly on the third day. And that is amazing and something for which we should all be thankful. So the seventh thing that we are going to be talking about in regards to what makes Christianity unique is that in Christianity, power, or you could substitute the word leadership, is an opportunity for service rather than for self. For the world, leadership is about me. What can I accomplish? We talk about climbing the corporate ladder. And if you are part of the world, your mentality is, how can I get to the top of the ladder? And even in uh, normal everyday life, we kind of do this when we say, make sure that you are happy. Don't be concerned with how other people feel. Just make sure that you are happy. But as I've talked about many times in this podcast and in my sermons, the goal of a Christian is not to be happy. The goal of a Christian is to live a holy life. Now, happiness can be the result because when you're doing what God tells you to do, he will often bring happiness into your life And I can guarantee you this, if you're not doing what he has told you to do, you will not truly be happy. But holiness is the goal. So what do we read for this first point today? But Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But who 
Soever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's Mark ten forty two to 45. So what Jesus is outlining for us here is this idea that he says the Gentiles, uh, they have a leadership structure which seeks for power at all costs. They lord their authority over those under them. And what Jesus is saying is that for followers of me, I want you to be servants. And not only am I just asking you to be servants, but I'm showing you by example that that is exactly why I came. Jesus could have at any moment allowed them to make him king and he would have been justified because he was the king. But if you remember in Scripture, when they did try to make him king, he went off by himself and avoided them because his time had not yet come. And of course, his declaration as king did not come from a great throne in the center of Rome, but rather from a tall cross where Pilate wrote, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That is the ultimate act of servitude, the ultimate act of humility. Jesus did it for us. And he said, No man takes my life, I lay it down. And I have power both to lay it down and to take it up again. And he showed that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they asked for Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am, and they fell backwards. I often wonder what was going through their minds as the Roman guards took Jesus and bound him, whether any of them were wondering whether this was a bad idea because he'd just proven power over them. They couldn't even stand up in his presence, and yet he was allowing them to take him and put him on trial, a farce of a trial, and then crucify him but he had the last laugh when he rose again the third day. We read, continuing on, on this issue of being a servant. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So Paul is saying that we've been given liberty as Christians, but we're supposed to use it to show love to one another. We're not supposed to use it for our own vainglory. We're not supposed to use it to strive against our enemies, but we're supposed to use it to show love to one another. Philippians 2.13, Let nothing be done, through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. This is so important. We need to have an attitude of humility. When we are talking about the truths of Christ, we are not talking in such a way as to say, I am better than you. No. 
The only thing I can say is that by the grace of God, I've been redeemed. By the grace of God, I'm able to walk a better path because of what he did for me. So the eighth thing on our list is that Christianity offers a meaning to suffering in the Christian life. You know, one of the biggest arguments that I hear against Christianity is that if God was a good God, he would not allow all the suffering to occur. They say, I can't believe God because so much suffering has occurred and he does nothing about it. But a Christian realizes that suffering is the way that God makes us who we are and forms us into the very image of his son. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelation, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to make a couple points here. First of all, Paul understood that the reason for his suffering was so that he would have an increased dependence on God. Because we tend, as humans, to be like our father Adam and think that we know what's best for ourselves, and then we fall. Proverbs says it this way, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's you and I. If we're left to our own devices, all we can do is follow the ways of death. But Paul says the thorn in the flesh that he was given was an opportunity for him to daily experience the grace of God. And he doesn't shun his infirmities. He doesn't say, well, if I was a true enough Christian, then my infirmities wouldn't be there. No, he says, I glory in my infirmities. I'll never forget how life-changing it was to sit in a conference as a teenager and hear the speaker say, you need to thank God for your physical limitations. And he actually used the story, I believe it was of Johnny Erickson Tata. She had attended one of these conferences and she came up to talk to him afterwards and she said, you mean I have to thank him for this wheelchair? And she was dumbfounded by that. But it wasn't until she did that that she was really able to thrive in her ministry. So yes, thanking God for your infirmity and realizing that it is a gift of God is a key to success in the Christian life. Paul goes on to say, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 What is Paul saying here? 
He's saying, I realize that suffering is a part of the human experience. He's saying it's unavoidable. But he's saying that the glories that will be revealed in us at the end of time will make suffering worth it. That excites me. I know that I am frail. I know that I am dust. I know that my body doesn't do what I want it to do sometimes. But I also know that my corruptible body will put on incorruption and my immortal body will put on immortality. And there's no room for wheelchairs or cerebral palsy in incorruption. It will be gone. The writer of Hebrews says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, suffered for us. So how do we have the audacity to ever feel or claim that suffering would not be a part of the human existence? If the perfect Son of God, who is our example, endured suffering patiently because he knew what the end result would be, how much more should we, who are imperfect and deserve the suffering that we get, endure it and thank God for it along the way and be grateful for heaven whose door his suffering opened. The ninth truth that we want to consider today, which is unique to Christianity, is that Christianity offers truth in the absolute person of Jesus. This may very well be the most important point of this whole series, because we are living in a time where everyone is expected to live their truth. Just mind your own business, let me live my truth, you live your truth, and we'll all be happy. But the reality is, happiness is the farthest thing from many people's minds. Because they wake up every day, many of them, with this idea of, what can I be offended about today? And the reality is, unless you ground your moral compass, and something definite, truth will always change. The book of James says, don't be tossed aside by every wind and wave. And the only way to not do that is to be on the stable ground of truth, who is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have chaos today because there's no specific moral basis for truth. And then we scratch our heads and we say, how did we get here? Well, that is how we got here. Ignoring the truth that is Jesus Christ. 
And that's not a new problem. Pilate was standing right next to Jesus, who is the personification of truth. And he said to Jesus, What is truth? Jesus saith unto Philip, as recorded in John fourteen six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Look at the definitive statements that he makes in this verse. I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth, or a life, but the. John 1.14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know what truth is? Look at Jesus. The hymn writer says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What do we need for the troubled times in which we find ourselves? We need a people who turns their eyes on Jesus. John 1.17 continues, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And what does Galatians tell us about the law? It tells us that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Because we would not know that we needed Jesus unless we knew about the law and knew about our inability to follow it. That is why Jesus died, because we were unable to follow the law and we needed him to fulfill it for us. Because he said every jot and tittle of the law would be fulfilled and it could only be fulfilled by his perfection. The tenth thing that is unique about Christianity is that Christianity teaches us that salvation is received, not achieved. And this is so important. Because even as a believer, I can get in this mindset that I am so good and that I, if I just keep going, I'll, I'll be good enough. And I can live this Christian life on my own strength. When the reality is I can't. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say it this way. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And one thing that I have gleaned from this verse, especially in recent years, is this idea that perhaps even the faith that we are given to believe is not from ourselves. This is borne out in Romans chapter 1 where it says, No one seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. There's no room for boasting. Paul says, I could boast if anyone could boast because I had everything going for me as far as earthly success. But I count it all as dung, as refuse that I might win Christ. No earthly achievements 
will be what gets you into heaven. Only trusting Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that, while we were yet sinners. It wasn't like we somehow became worthy, and then he said, okay, I'll die for you because you're worthy. No. In a previous verse in this chapter, it says, while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. There was no fact that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and did 80% of the work, and then Jesus had to do the final 20. No. He did it all, my friends. Every single bit of it. Romans 3.23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the first part of this verse tells us that we have all sinned. We're all in the same boat. You know, some people in the world have this false idea that we as believers think that we are better than they are, and I confess that sometimes we act like it, so this is not a totally baseless claim. But the reality is that if we are a biblical Christian, we know that the reality is that we are all sinners, that there's nothing that makes us better than the guy on the street corner. The only thing that's different between us and them, perhaps, is the very grace of God which gave us redemption through the death of Jesus Christ. The eleventh thing that is unique about Christianity is Christianity teaches us to ask for and give forgiveness. Remember we talked about earlier in this podcast, we've actually mentioned it a few times, this idea that we are not perfect, that we never will be. And we just talked about in this last point that none of us are better than anybody else. So how can we sustain relationships? When you have relationships either platonic or romantic, marriage or otherwise, business, whatever you want to put in there, how can you sustain them when they're made up of two imperfect people? Well, to put it simply, Marriage, just as an example, is made up of two people who are good forgivers. Because we know that we're not perfect, so the only answer is to be a good forgiver. And we need to be willing to ask for forgiveness when we are wrong and to give forgiveness to those who wrong us. And I want to say something quickly about this. And that is that I think that there is a sense in which you can't give forgiveness until someone asks for it. But there is also a sense for your own well-being and for your own relationship with God that you need to have an attitude of forgiveness toward these people regardless of whether they forgive you or not. And I know that can be a, a difficult thing, but I've heard it said, and I think it's worth repeating, that choosing not to forgive someone is like eating poison and expecting the other person to die. It's not a good way to go. The Bible says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 This passage in James tells us that we need to be able to confess our faults one to another, to let people know when we are wrong, and to ask for their forgiveness. This is so key. Because if we think that we're perfect, we're lying. The Bible says in 1 John, If a man thinks he hasn't sinned, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. So if we serve Jesus who is the truth, then we need to admit our faults. As we do that, those around us need to be willing through the grace of God to forgive us, or if someone is confessing to us, we need to be willing to forgive them. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And again, that's Ephesians 4.32. These are not optional things. These are not, if you're feeling up to it, if you think you can handle it, these are non-optional things. These are commands of God. And then finally, Christianity tells us we aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, this is not meant to be a cliché. I realize it's often delivered in a cliché form, but please allow me to unpack this. The reality is, this is not an excuse for sin. The Bible says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God wants us walking in righteousness and striving toward him. I've heard it said that as we grow closer to Christ, although we will never be sinless on this side of glory, we should sin less because our focus is on Jesus. But here's what Paul said. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that do I. Now I want you to notice here that Paul is talking in the present tense. He doesn't say, that's what I used to do. He says, that's what I do. And this is the man who tells us one chapter earlier to not continue in sin just because grace will abound. But he is being honest and saying, I have this struggle, there's nothing good in my flesh, what can I do? And as you go down the chapter, you hear him say that his victory, his hope, is in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the next scripture on this topic, in 1 John 2, 1, where John writes, My little children... These things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now again, the desire of God is that we would live holy, righteous lives. But he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so he has a way of reconciliation. And that way is because the great high priest Jesus stepped in the gap for us, went into the Holy of Holies once for all, and is consistently interceding for us 
standing at the throne of God. And when I mess up, when I sin, Jesus stands up on my behalf and says, I paid for that sin, Father. It's been done away with at the cross of Calvary. And my friends, that's what he wants to do for you. He wants to do away with your sin at the cross of Calvary. I do hope that these last two weeks have been especially encouraging to you. I hope that if you are a believer, that you will share this with your family and friends as a springboard to express to them your experience in receiving the the gospel of Jesus Christ and experiencing him as the truth in your life and the foundation of your life. And if you're not a believer, might I encourage you to study the things that I have talked about today? You know, in the book of Acts, Paul commands a group of people called the Bereans because they searched the scriptures daily to find out if the things which he said were so. And it is my greatest desire not that people would believe these things because I say them, but that they would believe them because they are true, and that they would search the scriptures and find out if the things that I say are so. You know, the scriptures have a wonderful track record of people opening them up, desiring to refute them, and then coming face to face with the living God. And that is my desire for each of you listening, that you would come face to face with the living God. Well, that's about all I have time for this week. Again, we will probably be diving into each of these unique aspects of Christianity individually in the weeks to come. So I do hope that you will stay tuned. As always, I'm just grateful to be along for the ride as I encourage you in the Christian life. We need each other. This isn't a solitary walk. It's a group effort. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. With that being said, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 